Good morning, Journey. Man, I am so glad to be back in the United States of America. It's always good to go and to serve, but it's always good to come back and get that first American meal in an airport. You know what it's going to taste like, a, a cheeseburger and fries and something safe to drink. We had an unbelievable time in Israel, but there's just something about clearing customs back into the States that, uh, that feels right. And I am so glad to be back in church on, uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, you know, I, I told our team last Sunday night, uh, last Sunday night we, uh, we were on the Sea of Galilee um, in northern Israel. And we met as a team, we had dinner, and we just talked around our table about the thing that day. Every day we ended with the thing that had impacted you the most that day. And I told our team, I said, I think this Sunday, which would have been last Sunday, I said, I think this has been the greatest Sunday in the history of our church. And we're wrapping up today a series on generosity. For the last six weeks, we've been talking about generosity. And we define generosity the first week of this series as open-handed living, of sharing our lives and our, and our time and our resources and our ability with others. And last Sunday, I think our church maybe did that better on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon period, maybe better last Sunday than, than ever before, because we had generosity and ministry happening right here. Uh, for the very first time ever in the young history of our church, uh, y'all literally did church with, without any pastors. Pastor Ryan and I were both in Israel leading our team of 16, serving over there. And our church last Sunday, literally from start to finish, was led by volunteers who were generous with their time and who were generous with their leadership and who were generous with their ability and who were generous with their concern and care for others. Uh, and we saw last week right here on Sunday our, our generosity in the future. So not just generosity in ministry, but generosity in the future because Pastor Blake Finef was here. And I hope you enjoyed him last Sunday like I thought you would, a young dynamic church planner. He's part of the church planning network that we support. Every time you give, we give part of that offering to that church planning network to support guys like Blake, who in six to nine months will plant his own church in Miriam, Kansas, and will begin to reach people there the way that we're reaching people here. And you saw what our generosity would be going towards in the future. And then we saw last Sunday our generosity in missions. Because in Israel, they go to church on Saturday. Saturday is their Sabbath, or what they call their Shabbat. So on Saturday, we worshiped with the Messianic Jewish congregation. These are Israeli Jewish folks who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and we went to church with them, and then we sat with their pastor, their pastor that they call rabbi, and we just talked about the things that our ministry is doing in partnership with them, and we walked through their food warehouses where they're storing up food to give away for people in northern Israel that have nothing to their name. Seventy-five percent of their congregation has to ride a bus to church because they don't even own a car. They're serving some of the poorest people in the nation of Israel. And every time you give an offering, we take part of that offering and we send it to Israel. And we were so blessed to see what the offerings of our church are doing. And then Sunday morning, we got up and we served. It was Monday in Israel because they're about a, a week off. So their Sunday is a work day. They get up at eight o'clock and go to work. Their Thursday nights are Friday night and their Fridays are Saturday and, and vice versa. But we got up on Sunday and we served all day. And we had three teams that were serving in Israel. We had a team that all they did for six hours was go to a local beach. And we've got some pictures uh, of them. They went to a local beach and we worked with the city of Haifa. Uh, we were told that we we're some of the first Americans that have ever come over to work with the city, the local government there, to just help clean up trash and pick up trash. And this team, for six hours, walked a stretch of beach 
and they picked up trash there. And while they were picking up trash, they were being engaged by people who were hanging out at the beach. And one woman came up to one of our ladies and said, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? And she told him who we were and where we were from. And she said, you know, we, were, we belong to a church in Kansas City that believes that we're supposed to help people all over the world. So we're here this week, and we're just helping. And we asked what they needed done, and they told us that they needed us to pick up trash. She said, so you came all the way from America to pick up trash. And she said, yeah, we came here to help. And she said, how can I be a part of that organization? Because I want to be a part of an organization that will go halfway across the world to help people. And, and we had one team, a team of three that just went, and they helped paint a house. And we've got some pictures of this guy. They, they went, this is a man whose wife just recently passed away, and he's remarried, and now he has a two-year-old little girl. And when we called ahead, the church or the congregation that we helped was called Beit Eliyahu, which means House of Elijah, because it's right on Mount Carmel where Elijah would have done a lot of his ministry. And they said, we've got this guy, and he, he just needs someone to help him and hang out with him all day. So we sent three guys over there, two, a couple of yahoos that were painting each other, Zerb and Harry there, um, and Carly went over. And for six hours, they moved furniture, and they literally redid his entire living room. We have a picture that we, we're, we won't show today, but of Harry playing with dolls with little Evelyn, um, just helping her out, just just befriending them and loving them on Jesus' behalf. And then a crew of us stayed behind and we painted their church. We painted their auditorium. Uh, we painted their entryway. Their, we, we repainted their entire foyer so it would look brand new. Uh, we redid their kids' ministry area and gave them, I mean, their kids' ministry area looked so good when we got finished with it. Um, and Robbie, who one of our team, actually owns a painting company, so he, he told us what to do and made sure we did it well. And it was just unbelievable just being a blessing to their church. On Monday morning, we got up and we had baptisms on, in the Jordan River, uh, and we baptized a group of our people where Jesus was baptized. And we talked about how baptism symbolizes that our sins have been washed away, that we have buried our old life, and that we want to live a new life in Jesus. And then we ended our trip where we always ended our trip, at the tomb of Jesus, which if you don't know, it is empty. And they believe that it was there in that location. Historians and scholars believe it's not only possible but probable that this could be a tomb where Jesus was laid right there against the corner of that tomb. I took that picture from inside the tomb of Jesus. And it was so cool to be in Israel and be reminded again as we took communion there uh, near the garden tomb that Jesus is alive and that this faith thing we're doing is real. And that if we will just learn how to plug into Jesus, he will plug into us. And he said he'll give us a life that we could not have on our own if, if we will partner with him in what we call life. And I looked at last Sunday. I was sitting in Nazareth where Jesus um, was, was raised, basically. It's where the angel Gabriel came and told Mary, you're going to be pregnant. You're going to have a son. And we were worn out. We had served for six or seven hours. And then we went to the Valley of Armageddon where the Bible says the world will end. And then by the time we got to Nazareth, it was dark. And we walked through the church um, of the Annunciation where it was announced or celebrated that it was announced to Mary that she was going to be pregnant. And underneath the church of the Annunciation, they've begun to dug out first, dig out first century Nazareth where Jesus would have been, um, where he would have lived, uh, where, where he would have been raised. Uh, and we're getting ready to leave, and we're standing looking over a fence. And we've, our youngest guy on the trip was a, a little 11-year-old named Robert. Um, and Robert and I are sitting there kind of looking in the dark at all the, the dugout remains. And he said, uh, he said can, we, can we go in there? And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know. I can't, see a, I can't see a way to get in. And he said, well, let's look around. So, you know, being Americans, we found some open doors and some open gates. And we ended up maneuvering our way down to kind of the edge of the village where 
there was a hole you could climb in to kind of get into this uh, this space. Um, and I said, you know, I don't think we're supposed to be in there. It's dark. So I went and kind of sat up by myself. And I was sitting on this hill all by myself waiting for our group, not knowing that they had figured out how to get in there. And they were just in, running around in this first century open archaeological dig. Thank God none of us got arrested and sent to Israeli jail. But I'm sitting in there and people are sending me text messages of how well church is going. And, man, church is great, and Brandon's doing great, man, Blake is doing great, and our, we have the most awesome volunteers in the world. And I just feel so blessed, and we leave Nazareth, and we drive to the Sea of Galilee, and I'm getting ready to go into the elevator, and Danielle calls me and just said, Christian, it was one of the greatest days ever. And as I took that elevator right up, I thought, I'm so thankful for the generosity of our people reflected in this day and what's going on in Lee Summit, and what's going on in Israel, and what's going to go on in the future of Miriam, Kansas. And I was, I was just so glad. I, I thought as I rode up the elevator, I thought I could die in my sleep tonight, and I felt like the mission that we set up to, to accomplish was accomplished on that day. Our, our mission is to see people far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. And I think last Sunday we did that well. So let me, on behalf of all of you who served and went, and all of you who contributed to that day, let me say thank you for helping us accomplish our vision. Uh, we've been in this series on generosity, talking about open-handed living. And, and just a quick review, we've said that generosity always produces blessing for those who receive it. Every time we're generous with our time, every time we're generous with our ability, every time we're generous with our resources, any time we live open-handed and say, I want to share some of what I have with what, with what you need, whether it's a third grader at lunch who shares some of his potato chips or a church who gives to a church in Israel so that they can have more to give to those who have none, every time we're generous, we produce a blessing for those who receive it. We said that the more generous we are, the more we bless others. And we talked about how the Bible says that we should become excellent in our generosity. We should learn how to be more and more generous. And we talked about how in giving there are people who learn how to give casually and then they give consistently and then they give proportionately. And when we talked about when it came to money, we talked about this tithing giver. And we said that there's a generosity tipping point according to Scripture. When someone will give 10% of what God gives them that allows them to have this spirit of generosity not just leave from them, but return to them, according to Malachi chapter 3. If you just return 10% of what God gives you, he promises blessing and protection. And, and as we've been talking through this, and we're six weeks into it now, and as we've met our friends from Africa, Frank and Jan and Garrett and Michelle, and as those of you who have interacted with Blake and his team, interacted with Blake and his team, and as we sat in Israel last Sunday, and we heard a pastor tell us there are more than a million Christians globally that visit Israel every year, and less than 1% of them ever stops to serve the people of Israel or go to a church trying to reach people with the gospel of Jesus in Israel. He said, what you're doing is special. As we realized what we were engaged in was special. It's like everyone wanted to lean in. It's like, how do we give more? We know what we're giving now. How do we give more? How do we do more? How do we clean up more? How do we paint more? The soft heart in this room the last six weeks has heard what's been said, and they've leaned in and said, man, I want that to be me. But the biblical reality is just because we lean into a heart of generosity does not mean we develop a culture of generosity. Because as we look at Scripture, we find that generosity is hard. And what I want to talk to you about today as we leave this series, I want to help you 
at least confront some of the obstacles in your life to generosity. And I want to talk to you about today why generosity is hard. And I know there's a typo on your sermon, and I know I'm experiencing a bit of jet lag, so please don't hold me responsible for anything I say today because I'm, I'm short on sleep and it's almost time to go to bed. And I, I did the, the master notes for this message at about 1.30 a.m. after 12 hours of touring, so I'm not sure what this says. But I'm going to try to give you as best as I know how today in my sleep-deprived jet lag state, what the Bible says about generosity and some of the obstacles we have to confront in order to be a church filled with individuals who believe and live this culture of generosity. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 18. And if you don't have your Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They've got Bibles for you to use. They've got Bibles for you to have. We've given away more than 500 Bibles since our church began. So if you're new and you don't have one, just make eye contact, wave at them, raise your hand, whatever. They'd love to give you a Bible. If you don't have one, put your name in it. This one's yours. Take it home and start reading it. If you just forgot yours today, but you'd like to follow along in Scripture, wave at them. They'll give you a Bible and you can throw it on the table when you leave. But we're in Luke chapter 18. And in Luke chapter 18, we meet a man who is leaned in to following Jesus. We meet a man who has a desire to go to heaven. We meet a man who is dialoguing with Jesus about what his next steps are spiritually. And we meet a man who doesn't experience the tipping point of generosity, but he experiences the tripping point of generosity. And it's an obstacle in his life that he's not able to overcome spiritually. Maybe your Bible titles it the rich young ruler. Here's his story in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. It says, a certain ruler asked him, him is Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard him say this asked, well, who who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all. We had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and In the age to come, eternal life. Why is generosity so hard? Why is it when we want to follow Jesus and we begin following the commands of Jesus that we get tripped up at generosity? I don't know what that answer is for you, but I know what it has been for me. And I know what it is according to Luke chapter 18. And I just kind of want to walk you through. And I'd ask your heart and your mind to be open today to figure out where you are. If, If giving and generosity have been a tripping point for your faith. Let's figure out how we can walk through that. Why is generosity so hard? Well, first and foremost, it's because generosity is personal. Or we might even say it this way. uh, Generosity, it's private. You might say it this way. It's none of your business. Why don't you let that be between me and God? Some of us even say to God, God, I'll give you my life, but my money's mine. Generosity is personal. Generosity is private. Generosity we hold very close to our chest. Look at Luke chapter 18 because we, we see 
something really interesting here that until I began to study what the scholars had said on Luke chapter 18, I never understood this. And it's been, it's really opened my eyes to my personal generosity in my own life. A, A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good. I want you to underline that. Underline those words. No one is good. Never really stopped to think about what Jesus meant here until I began to study this text this week. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And this man, you can imagine, right? I mean, you can imagine if you walk up to Jesus and say, what's good enough? And Jesus says, do these things and you've done them. You can imagine how his chest puffed out and how he thought, oh, my goodness, I'm good enough for Jesus. Now, Jesus said no one is good enough for God's standard. But he said, what, what's, what's good enough? And what we find out is, is we find somebody who's looking for transactional Christianity. I want you to write those two words down. We find someone who's looking for transactional Christianity. You say, what is transactional Christianity? Transactional Christianity asks this question. What do I get and what do I have to give in order to get that? Transactional Christianity is all about me. What do I get from this and how much do I have to give in order to receive that? What's, what's the transaction that needs to take place for me to have the blessing that you want to give me? What what do I have to give? And it's, and it's all self-centered. Now, as Americans, we, we like the world of transactions. And when we were in Jerusalem this week, when you go shopping in the shops of Jerusalem, there's not a price tag on anything, and everything is a, is a conversational transaction, right? I mean, you walk into a store, and any of you have ever been to a third-world country or bought from a street vendor in a major city, um, more than what you get, it's the dialogue and how you get there. So you walk into a store and you think, I want that thing, and I, I, I want to get that, and I'm willing to give 10 bucks for it. So you walk in and you say, how much is that? And they say, 20. So you say, okay, I'll give you, anybody? I'll give you five. You know you're willing to give 10. Yeah, I'll give you five. You know what, 18. I'll give you seven. No, i got to have 15. Then you hold out the $10 bill and you say, this is all i got. And it's, no, it's got to be 15. Then you start walking slowly out of the store, like waving it in their fog. I'm leaving. If I don't get this shirt for 10, I'm leaving. No, 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 no. You're my friend. You're my friend. Oh, you can have it for 10. And it's like, I didn't even want it, but I won, right? Like, I, you know, I don't care what I bought, but I just won the transaction. I mean, we're transactional people. What do I get and how much do I have to give? When we approach generosity that way, it never works. When we approach generosity through the lens of me, what do I get? How much do I have to give? It never works. We find out that instead of transactional Christianity, Jesus is trying to get this young man to see transformational Christianity. You should write that down. Jesus is trying to get this young man to see transformational Christianity rather than transactional Christianity. See, transactional Christianity starts with me. What do I get and what do I have to give? Transformational Christianity starts with God. And it says, Jesus did this. 
And it starts with who God is, and it starts with what Jesus did. And it, and it begins to understand the transformational process of having a relationship with God. And it says, Jesus gave everything. So in order to be transformed by Jesus, the Bible says I have to trade places with him. He gave everything, so I have to give everything. Now, what does that mean for me financially? Because there are very few people in the world like this guy that Jesus said you have to give everything. He hasn't told, I don't think, anyone in here to give everything. But when we begin with transformational Christianity, we say Jesus gave everything for us, so everything in my life is his. So if I want to be more like him, what does Jesus say about generosity? And we start with Jesus instead of us. And we don't even begin with what we can get. We begin with the reality of what Jesus gave and how it can transform us. And it's deeply personal, but when we look through Scripture, we realize that God is not afraid to talk about money. Jesus was not afraid to talk about money because in the transformation of the individual, they view resources differently. Do you know when it comes to Jesus and money that there's 2,350 verses in the Bible about money? More than 2,000 times in the Bible, the Bible speaks to a man's or a woman's resources and how the transformation of our spiritual life begins to adjust those. Did you know that one out of every six verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is about material possessions? And how when someone follows Jesus, not that they give everything, but they hold them much more loosely, and they begin to figure out how they can use those for the good of others instead of just themselves, 15%, one out of every six things Jesus said was about material possessions. Did you know that nearly half of Jesus' parables are about money? When he was trying to explain to people how your heart changes spiritually, he looked at it through the lens of of material possessions and how we begin to view those differently. Do you know that Jesus spoke more about money and how to use it than he did about heaven and hell combined? It wasn't an if you you don't want to go to hell, raise your hand. If you want to go to heaven, raise your hand. It was much more like the rich young rulers about transformation. If you really want all of Jesus, this is what life will begin to look like for you. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about giving. He wasn't afraid to talk about generosity. And what he revealed is that deep faith is always revealed by deep generosity. But generosity is personal. It's private. It's kind of it's difficult in today's day and age. Secondly, we find it generosity, yes, it's, it's deeply personal, but it's also simply practical. I mean, it's very simply practical. Jesus said, give. Like it wasn't a difficult equation. Look at verse 22, and then we'll flip down to verse 28. When Jesus heard this young guy say, hey, I'm doing good with all the religious stuff, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Later, Peter, responding to this statement, said in verse 28, Jesus, we've left all we had to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who's left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus looked at this rich young ruler and he said, listen, your faith problem is a money problem. You've got a money problem spiritually. And yes, you followed all these commandments and yes, you go to church, but you have a money problem spiritually. Now, I'll be honest with you. It was difficult for me to admit a few years ago that I had some money problems spiritually. But I found out that I did. 
was actually reading this book. It's called Empty Promises by Pete Wilson. And Pete talks about six or seven things in here that we rely on for complete satisfaction in life apart from Jesus. And he talks about how anytime we place more faith in X than Jesus, it lets us down. And there's a chapter on here about money. And when I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, that's me. I've got some money problems spiritually. And he mentions three that people, that, that Christians struggle with. And I wouldn't have said I had money problems because I love to give. I still love to give. There was a point in my life, you know, because I was raised in church, like when my mom and dad gave us our allowance of a dollar, they would pay us in dimes so we could give one of them to the offering. If they ever gave us $10, they would pay us in ones so we could give one to the offering. Like I've never not known giving 10%. When I was in college and I was on a college scholarship and we got a stipend for room and board off campus, $250 every two weeks, I would always take 25 and give it to the church. There was one point in Danielle and I's life for a period of about three years where we gave 25% of our gross income away every year between our church, our former college, our high schools, things we were really passionate about. We just love to give. So I I hear people talking about money problems spiritually and I'm thinking, not me, I love to give. But I had some money problems spiritually that kept me from really having a generous, open heart towards God. I had the money problem of identity, of believing that my money defined who I was. And it wasn't really that money defined who I was, but money gave a picture of success, which was my identity. And from the cars that I drove to the house that I lived in, to the places I went shopping, I, I began to identify in my soul with the things that money gave me. And I realized I had an identity problem. You know, I, I played sports growing up, and you could always tell who won by the scoreboard. And for me, money gave me an opportunity to put points on the board that people could recognize, wow, he's doing well. I couldn't wait. Here's how I knew I had a money problem. I couldn't wait when I went back home. I would always stop 20 minutes from my hometown in the three or four times that I went back and make sure I, I like deep washed my car so it was nice and clean and sparkly because I knew when I drove into my little poor town in southern Ohio that people would say, wow, nice car. I remember when I would fly back into town and I'd have a speaking engagement in my hometown, I'd stop in the airport and I'd make sure I had my shoes shine because I wanted them to see like, wow, man, Christian really has it together. And I realized as I started looking at money that, that I, had, I had an identity problem and that who I was and how I was seen, I wanted people to see what I had achieved financially through what I had had because they would believe I was successful that way. And I had to get past that where I thought, Lord, I don't, I don't care what people think of me financially. I don't, I, I'm not keeping score anymore. But then identity for me became materialism where money began to define what I enjoyed. And, and I would say, listen, I know money doesn't define me, and, and I don't identify anymore with, hey, life is going good because I'm blessed financially. But you heard me say there was a point when Daniel and I did give 25%. We, we backed down to that. Now it's like 10 or 12% now because we're church planners. But we did that way before we were hurting financially because we realized that extra 10 or 15% could give us some things that we enjoyed. And the things that I enjoyed kept my heart from being wide open in generosity. I gave what God commanded me to give so he wouldn't be disappointed in me. 
but it was never anything extra because it, it might keep me from doing something I wanted to do. But then the, the worst of my money problems spiritually was security. And this is the thought that my money protects and provides for my future. And this is where God had to break my back in order to plant a church. Because the reason that I would never start a church is because I knew for a year that, that there would be a year where I sold my house, I quit my job, and I didn't have an income. And I just thought, Lord, without money, I've got two kids, I've got a wife, like, I just don't know what I'll do. And I probably waited three years longer than I should have to start a church because I had a money problem. And whereas identity, you know, it's not good, it's not terrible. Materialism, not good, not terrible. Security, basically, I was putting money in place of God. And when, when, my, saving, when my savings account was high, when my emergency fund was full, I slept well at night. And when it wasn't full, and when my savings reserves were low, I worried all the time. And God said, Christian, you have placed your faith in money instead of me. You know it doesn't matter how much is in your savings account one way or another. Like, you should go to sleep and sleep well because you know I'm going to take care of you. You should get up and be happy because you know I'm going to take care of you. And I literally, when God said start a church, I thought, Lord, if you give me ten years, I'll financially put this whole thing together, and I'll make sure that I'll be okay first. And then I'll do what you said. And I realized I had a security problem. That the reason I couldn't be open to God was because I was afraid he wouldn't take care of me. And God had to break that in me in order to, pre, in order to, to launch a church. In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. You can't serve God and money. And that's what I was trying to do for about five, a five- to seven-year period. I, I knew what God had called me to do, but I couldn't figure it out financially. And literally, God waited on my bank account. And there are some of you in here today, you've leaned into generosity, and you really, in your heart, you know what God has said. But you said, God, I know what you say, but I know what my bank account says. And I've got to choose, man. And I'm just going to have to choose my bank account right now. And if you're like that, you, everyone in this room has at one point been there until God breaks through your spirit and he gives you generosity. In 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul warned Timothy, he said, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people who are eager for money have wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, most of us don't believe we have money problems. We believe we just have a money shortage. If we had more, we'd give more. I was in Israel reading the news and I read that on November 1st, um, Kobe Bryant, for those of you who don't know who Kobe Bryant is, um, he's a basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers. He's the highest paid basketball player in the National Basketball Association or the NBA. And he has a clause in his contract that he gets paid 80% of his salary on the first day of the season every year. So on November 1st, Kobe Bryant got a check for $24,363,044. Like, that's a pretty good day's work. Um, <laughs> That's a pretty good lifetime's work, right? And, and we read that and we think, you know, if I'm Kobe Bryant, I'll, get, like, I'll, I'll buy the church a building. Like, you know, I give, I give so much. I wouldn't even keep track of my giving, but I don't have that much. But when we have correct financial perspective, did you know? Did you know that 50% of the world lives in total poverty? One out of every two people on planet Earth has no shoes, no consistent food source, and no clean water. So if you're sitting in this room today and you have shoes, and I look when 
people came in. I don't know that there's anybody barefoot. Maybe one teenager I saw walk in without shoes on. If you're going to eat today, and if you have clean water, you're, you're in the top 50% of people living in earth when it comes to wealth. Did you know that 40% of the world, the other 40% of the 50% lives in poverty? Not total poverty, but poverty. They have only two pairs of shoes. They generally have a consistent food source. They're not starving. They have some clean water, but not in their home because most of them don't have a home and they have no access to medical care. So do you know if you're in the room and you have three pairs of shoes, you have the ability to have food every day, you have clean water in your home and you have access to medical care, do you know that you're in the top 10% of people who have money on planet Earth? Did you know? That 5% of the world is only getting by of the other 50% that aren't living in total poverty. They have housing and shelter. They have clean water. They have some medical care. They have access to clothing. And they have educational opportunities. But did you know that most of us are living in the top 4.5% of the world who are similar to the American middle class? They own their own home or they live in a home that they have a mortgage on. They own a car that they have the ability to drive. They have multiple pairs of shoes. They live in a place that has clean water in their home and every place that they go. They live in a place where they have food stored in their home that will feed them for more than a day or two. And they have access to free education that is state-sponsored. Now, if you were to tell me that you graduated in the top 4.5% of your high school or college graduating class, would we all agree that you were smart? Yes or no? Or a really good cheater, right? I mean, like if you were in the top 4.5%, we would all say you're smart. How come we can live in the top 4.5% of the world and not say I'm rich? How come those of us in the room who are here, 99% of the people in the room, if not 100 can live in the top 4.5% of people financially in the world and not believe we're rich? Is it a perspective problem? The spiritual money problem? 0.5% live like the upper middle class to wealthy American lifestyles like Kobe Bryant. And we look at them and say they're rich. Man, if we ever, if we ever were blessed like they were blessed, guess what? 95.5% of the world's looking at you saying, if I was ever blessed like you were blessed, man, I'd be so generous. You know, when we, when we read through how practical giving is, and Jesus saying, look, you have, so you're supposed to give, the equation is not really, really hard. But this rich young ruler, man, he, he didn't have it in him. He had money. He didn't have a heart of generosity. You say, well, what do you do? Here's the third thing we learn about generosity today. Generosity is personal. Generosity is practical. Generosity is possible. It's possible for you. It's possible for your spouse. It's possible for your kids. It's possible for our church. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, verses 23 through 27. Hang with me and keep your pen out, okay? Jesus told the rich young ruler, give away everything you have. Follow me. And he said, no, I can't do that. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich. I want you to circle the two words, the rich. Circle the words, the rich. And in the margin of your Bible, I want you to write, that's me. Now, if you have less than two pairs of shoes, 
If you don't have access to clean water, if you don't know where your food will come from today, if you've not had access to state-sponsored free education in your lifetime, that's not you. And man, I, I pray our church can be a blessing to you. But if that's you, if you're in the top 4.5% if your graduating class, don't call yourself dumb. We don't buy it. If you're in the top 4.5% of those who live in the global economy, you need to write, that's me. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Listen, you can do it is what Jesus is saying. And here's what I found in ministry. When money meets faith, emotions run deep. When money meets faith, emotions run deep. Actually, I I have found this. As a pastor, anytime I speak on money or marriage, you can cut the tension with a knife in the room because there are, there are deep scars, there are deep wounds, there are deep insecurities. There are a lot of people who they, they've got this huge conviction to give and they feel real guilty because they can't right now. I mean, it's palpable. I'll have people when I do a series on marriage who tell me I'm not going to come for the next month because I either had such a bad marriage or my marriage currently is so bad, like I'm not, I'm not going to come for that series. just hurts too much. And I have people that hear when we're going to do a series on generosity or giving who just say, I had a bad experience or I can't give or I don't want to be, I don't want somebody to talk to me about money for six weeks. I'll come back when you're done with that. When money meets faith, emotions run deep. But here's what scripture says. With God's help, your, um, or, or let me step one further. Generosity has to begin with a focus on God, not on money. So when money meets faith, emotions run deep, but generosity can't start with money meeting faith. It has to start with us meeting God. When we start with a focus on God rather than money, we have the opportunity to be generous. So a, um, so a few years ago, let me, let me tell you what happens when we begin our generosity journey with how much money it's going to cost. A few years ago, Danielle and I were living in our old house, and our favorite thing to do every night it was cold was light a fire. We loved to light it. We loved to smell it. We loved to listen to the sound of it crackling in the fireplace. And we had this natural wood-burning fireplace, but it got annoying because we kept having to feed it with newspapers and fire starter. You know, I wasn't a Boy Scout. I wasn't great at building fire. So I was constantly having to put fake fire in there to get it going, right? So one day I decided that we we had the opportunity to turn our fireplace into a gas-burning fireplace. So I called a fireplace company and said, hey, how much for you to come make my deal a gas-burning fireplace? I can't keep the wood burning long enough. Um, and guys, he was like 300 bucks. I was like, ah, that's too much. I told him I can do it myself. So I went to the fireplace store and said, how do I do this? And they laid it out. I said, listen, you buy this thing, you buy this thing. It's only about 20 bucks. You have to be careful that you don't blow up your house. I said, I'm not going to blow up my house. Just give it to me. So I got the stuff. I installed it. We said a prayer. We lighted a match. Nothing blew up and it worked. I mean, it was like, this is great. And I remember the first night we lit our gas burning fireplace and I threw the logs in. I, I didn't really have any wood that had been delivered, so I was buying it like four ninety nine a time at a gas station, like the little bundles of wood. So I put the wood in, turned the gas on, and boom, the you know, the wood fires up and we've got our fire going. Well, Daniel has to leave to do something. And the kids are sitting there and they're like, Hey, can we make s'mores? And I thought, you know, that's just the greatest idea I've ever heard. And this is just the most all American night we've ever had. And I have just I've just installed this all by myself. And yes, we should make s'mores. So they go to the cabinet. We had marshmallows, but we didn't have any chocolate and we didn't have any graham crackers. 
So they're like, Dad, you know, we've got to do s'mores now. I'm like, you're right. So I'm looking. So the fireplace is burning. It's real windy outside. And it, like, keeps blowing. And I'm thinking, you know, if I leave now, this wood's going to burn out. I'm going to have to spend another four ninety nine on wood. Um, and maybe my house will burn down. But I was more concerned about the four ninety nine than my house burning down. So I thought, you know, how do I, how do I, make, how do I stop this fire so I can use this wood again later? So I don't, I don't want to be out five bucks. So I turned off the gas. And unfortunately, like my fires, the wood did not burn out. They, it kept burning. So I thought, you know, I've I got to figure this out. So I got this idea. I had these orange um, Holden Depot buckets, five-gallon buckets in my garage. And I thought, if I, um, if I separate the logs and put them in the buckets, they'll eventually go out. I can set them outside. And when I get home, I can throw them back in the fireplace, and I can start them all over again. I won't have to spend another five bucks. And I thought, I am a genius. So I told Christian, go get me the buckets. So Christian goes and gets the buckets. And I, I've got them lined up, right, along the, along the edge of the carpet by the fireplace. And I got the tongs, and I'm, like, getting these things. And as I pulled them out, you know, I'm trying to blow them off, you know, so it goes out. And then I put, like, these, basically these burning logs in these buckets. And then I realized that there's still, like, ash and stuff in the bottom of the fireplace. So I'm scooping that out, and I'm putting them in the buckets. And it never really crossed my mind that, that burning wood will burn through a plastic bucket until I, until I picked it up, right? So I got everything out of the fireplace. The gas is off. We're almost ready to go. And, and I, you know, I told Christian, I said, open the back door. I'm going to lift up these buckets and take the back. Well, I lift up the bucket, and it has burned a hole in the carpet the size of the bucket. Now that, oh, no. And, like, the bucket has begun to melt now into the carpet. So I told Christian, open the door. I'm coming through. So I grabbed these buckets. And, like, one of them starts coming, like, literally falling in two. And I've got all this, like, burning ash inside. So not thinking that I'm not fireproof. I grab the bottom of the bucket, and it me- I've still got a scar. It melts into the ring of my hand. So now I'm attached to this bucket. It's burning a hole in my hand. It has burnt a hole in the carpet. And I get to outside my house, and I literally kind of just throw the bucket outside into my yard. And a big gust of wind hits, and my yard catches on fire. And I thought, oh, no. So I go, <laughs> it's a true story. So I go and I grab the hose. It's freezing outside, right? So I, Christian, I get the hose. So he gets the hose. I turn it on. So I turn it on and I'm and like nothing comes out. It had frozen and my pipes had busted in the basement. So now my yard's on fire. My basement is flooding. My hand has a plastic ring of Home Depot bucket stuck in it for the rest of my life. There's holes on our carpet, and I'm thinking. It was just five bucks, you know, just five dollars. And now I've burnt my yard and my pipes are broken and we're going to have to buy a new rug and my hand is going to have a scar on it forever. When we begin with how much it costs, it's hard to be generous. But if we begin with God in mind and we just say, it's just five, it's just God, I just trust you more than my identity, more than my materialism, more than my security. God, because I want to be transformed by what you say, I'm in. And I'll just, I'll figure it out on the fly. When we begin with a focus on money, we always get, we always get burned when it comes to generosity. So with God's help, skip to this point now, generosity is not only possible in your life, it's, it's probable. And here's, here's what I have found out as I have worked with people who were far from God, who have become Christians, who have begun to grow in their faith. Spiritual growth always results in greater generosity in your life. 
And here's what I want you to see through this series. Your generosity doesn't have to be here. I'm not, we're not doing this six-week focus so you give more money to our church. Our church doesn't need more money right now. One day we will, but we, we don't now. I had a dad tell me that, Christian, because of this series, and my daughter was listening to this series, and she said, for years we've been you know, paying her an allowance, and we've been paying her for you know, grade cards and all this stuff. And she said, after, the, after you spoke on tithing, she came home, she counted up all of her allowance, all of her grade card money she got in the last four years. She figured out what a tithe was. She went to the bank, got some cash, and he said, I'm laughing at her, because she brings this plastic baggie full of do- like dollar bills to church to give in the offering. And he said, it's the Africa Sunday. And you're talking about not just giving, but bicycles and motorcycles. And she leans over to me and says, um, can, I, can I give this money to Africa instead of the church? And I said, you can do whatever you want with it. It's, your, it's yours to give. He said, I hope that was the right advice. I said, of course it was the right advice. We want to teach people to develop a spirit of generosity, not just ownership of I have to give to the church. I was talking today with our, our lead usher, and he was talking about how much He was blessed last week by Blake, and he said, yeah, we just really feel like we're supposed to help him and give him some money. I didn't say, no, 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 give it to the church and let us decide how much. I just, go do it. Listen, you have inside your bulletin, except our first service was so generous, there's not much left, an opportunity to serve our community that has nothing to do with giving to our church this Christmas season. We call Coldwater, who's one of our local ministry partners, and said, we want 100 kids in this community who won't receive one gift for Christmas, and we want to adopt them and make sure that our generosity overflows to them. And they gave us the names uh, in, in Christmas gift wish lists of a hundred kids that go to school with our kids, that if our generosity doesn't touch them, no one's will. And at the end of this service, you're going to have an opportunity to go back to that blue Next Steps tent. You're going to have an opportunity to adopt a child in this community to provide a Christmas gift for, one that they have asked for, the one gift that they want. On the back of this flyer, we've provided an opportunity for you this holiday season to support the Hope Faith Ministry in downtown Kansas City that ministers to homeless men and women and their children. Listen, generosity is not just about the offering time at Journey Church International. It's a lifestyle that says what's mine, I share. I live open-handed. At the end of last service, which is much smaller than this service, we opened up the table. We had 100 gifts. They told me after the service we only have 21 kids left to adopt. And, Terry, I'm guessing like Danielle did not get ours yet. So, okay, we got those. So once she takes ours out, there's going to be less than that. But I told our church we try to adopt one per person in our family so that we recognize how blessed we are at Christmas by buying someone else a gift. So we try to get four so by the end of this service, they're going to be gone. But, but all of you, listen to me, everyone in this room has the opportunity to be generous in your life, in your community, in your world, with your time, with your ability. Every one of you has the opportunity to, to live open-handed. And, and it, not in a transactional way. Well, what's in it for me? But in a transformational way. I saw what Jesus did for me. And whatever he says, I'll, I'll do. He's transformed my life, and I trust him implicitly. So what I'm going to ask you to do when we look at the generosity challenge, moving forward, here would be my challenges for you in descending order. One, make a commitment to begin giving 10% of your income. It's a major commitment for some of you. Some of you are not going to be able to jump right into that, but I just, I just promise you you won't regret it. 
When God says, do this and I'll bless you, I really believe that. If, if that's not a commitment you can make right now, number two, make a commitment to take the next step on the generosity ladder. We've talked through those. If you're a casual giver, give every now and then start being consistent. If you're consistent, start being proportional. Realize you're going to give based on what God has given to you. Number three, make a commitment to begin giving. There are people who have gone to our church almost every Sunday for two years who have not yet begun this generosity journey. I challenge you to plug into this and see what God does. Don't even give it to us. Do it through cold water. Do it through hope faith. I promise you, you'll be blessed if you plug into a lifestyle of generosity. And then fourthly, always connect giving to mission. Sometimes I get guilty of seeing giving as financial. I see a financial statement from our church that says this is how much we give to missions. But when I stood in Haifa, Israel, in that food pantry, and I looked up at that food pantry, and there it was stacked almost as high as the ceiling, and they talked about all the food they give away and all the clothing they give away. And they talk about all the refugees coming back to Israel who have nothing. And I see an entire church full of people, eight out of ten people, who had to take public transportation to get to church. I think, Lord, don't let me look at financial statements. Let me think of people. Let me think of warehouses. Let me, let me think of ministry. Don't just give and say, oh, here you go. Think about the mission and ministry of your generosity when you give because I believe it will change the way you give, and the way you live life. My prayer for our church is that we are marked, like that lady said in Israel, that we are marked by how we give and how we serve in our community, in our city, and around the world. But for that to be the testimony of our organization, it has to be the heart of our individuals. So I challenge you moving forward. Embrace generosity and impact the world around you in a way that leaves such a legacy The people are forever changed because of what God has placed in your hands because he knows you'll live open-handed and be generous to others.